It's great to be with you all this morning. Thank you for a very warm welcome. Thank you for your kind hospitality always. Um, it's really fun to be out here where actually the spotlight is on out here these days. Usually the spotlight is on Washington, D.C., but it's eerily quiet back in Washington right now. All eyes are on you, uh, the voters, the rank and file, the, uh, those who will choose, choose the next president. And it's good to have a rest, but I know that the storm is coming in, in, in D.C. My wife and I grew up in lush, tropical, verdant Florida. I grew up at the beach. She grew up on a nursery, a, a farm, where they grow azaleas and camellias and citrus. And it's a paradise. Florida is a paradise. Um, wonderful, wonderful place to live. We moved to Washington, D.C. in 1999, as you heard. Um, I live there in the city and pastor a church on Capitol Hill. Whenever we travel, um, we always get questions about where we live. There are the frequently asked questions for those who live on Capitol, live, work on Capitol Hill. Um, so have you seen Obama lately and what does he say for himself? Uh, or what's going on up there, you know? Or um, most commonly, something like, is it worth it? Is it worth it? We especially get this from our family back in Florida. Is it really worth it? And of course, they imagine it worse than it is. They imagine it as completely paved, you know, guns a-blazing everywhere. <laughs> Everybody's laying in the gutters with heroin needles in their arms. It's not quite as bad <laughs> as they imagine it. But they're wondering about this kind of cost-benefit analysis that everybody engages in, no matter where you live, everybody's engaging in it in one way or another, aren't they? And living in D.C. over the better part of the past 20 years, we've engaged in it many, many times over the years in different ways. We're wearied by the fast pace and the higher cost of living and the crime and the corruption, all those things. We're, we're wearied by them. But there are also many good things about living there, infinite opportunities, fun things to do, uh, an endless number of new restaurants to eat in and um, plenty of arts and everything's free in the museums, you know. So there are many wonderful things like that. Our kids are in good schools. And from a financial perspective, buying a house in D.C. in 2001 was the wisest thing after marrying my wife that I could have ever done, you know. <laughs> um, it's, it was a brilliant move. So when we think about it, for us about what's in it for us when we count the cost, what's in it for us, yeah, it's worth it. It's worth it. But there's another factor for us as Christians, right? We've, we've sworn allegiance to Jesus Christ, and we pray for his kingdom to come. So I guess that from that perspective, it doesn't really matter whether it's worth it or not. We go wherever he sends us. We want to be faithful to him. We want to... We want to remain under his authority. And if, of course, the Lord calls us to follow him faithfully, but on the other hand, he isn't afraid of us counting the cost. The Lord isn't afraid of you counting the cost. He wants you to do it. 
He invites you to do it regularly. It's, it's a call on the Christian life. It's, it's a kind of spiritual discipline that we need to engage in. The wonderful thing about following Jesus is that wherever He goes, that's where the abundant life is. That's where you find it, wherever He is. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will fall into place. That means that wherever His kingdom is springing up, there's resurrection life all around. Prisoners are being set free. The sick are being healed. The hungry are being fed. Enemies are being reconciled with one another. All because Jesus is there. Jesus is there making all things new. He's changing things wherever He is. And His presence makes that place infinitely better. Apart from Jesus, whenever we ask, is it worth it, we're skewing towards selfishness, inevitably. Skewing towards fear and selfishness, really. In deciding where to live, in deciding who to vote for. Of course, this is a very prominent issue right now, isn't it? We're, in so many, in so many different ways, we're weighing the costs and benefits in terms of what's in it for me. If I make this particular choice, will I be safe? If I make this particular choice, will I be rich? But when we follow Jesus, the whole calculation changes because he leads us in establishing a new city, the city to come, his kingdom come. And it's a new city where everybody wins. There aren't winners and losers, but everybody wins where he is. Everybody comes out ahead where he is. So if you think Harrisonburg is worth it, wait till you see the city to come, the city that Jesus is establishing, the city that Jesus is building. And Jesus invites us to come into that kingdom and live in that kingdom with him now, even though it is still unfolding before our eyes. He invites us to enter into it with him now and experience it with him now. But the long-term benefits of being a part of that city now often require some short-term costs on our end up front, don't they? How do we keep our eyes on Jesus in the midst of pressures and expenses in the present? By regularly counting the cost. That's what he wants us to do. That's what he invites us into. We weigh the costs and benefits of following Jesus, and when we do it, We renew our allegiance to Him. We say, yes, Lord, you're worth it. Yes, Lord, I want to follow you. So that's what this sermon is about, and we're going to dig into it in just a moment. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke 14. That's where it will be. It's okay if you have it on a phone. Take it out. It's going to help. As we turn to God's Word, let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for... Your holy word, we thank you that you speak to us through it. We ask that you would open our 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 ears and our hearts to hear from you today. We ask that you would give us wise understanding as only comes through the presence and power and working of your spirit in us. Fill us with your spirit and speak to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have some friends who are from England, and they came to the States at Christmas time and spent a week here to see our country. 
And uh, they drove from Miami to New York City over the course of a week. And so they saw America. And uh, they spent some time in Florida. They, they saw Miami in Florida. Um, and as a Floridian, of course, there are things that I wish that they would have seen besides Miami. But they, they saw a number of things, and they drew a number of conclusions. For example, at every exit, there's a McDonald's. You know, they drew conclusions <laughs> along the way up 95. And most of their conclusions are accurate, and they certainly got the big picture by doing that. They certainly got the big picture. And a similar thing happens when we read a, a big chunk of Scripture, as we did this morning in Luke 14. I know it's a long passage, and if you were paying attention all the way to the end through Aubrey reading it, you are a super genius, and you should go on to rule the world. Uh, I, I, I don't imagine very many of us could take all of that in, but what we're doing is we're kind of taking that fast drive down I-95 to see the whole thing of Luke 14 today because we're trying to get the big picture. And as we take the big picture in, we're going to see that there's one theme through this whole chapter over and over and over again, and it's this theme of counting the cost. We're going to miss some of the details. That's okay. Aubrey's coming. Long after most of you have graduated from graduate school, Aubrey will get to chapter 14. (laughs) And you can do the details. But... um, Today we're going to do the fast drive-through on Luke 14. And in this chapter we find Jesus is on the way from the verdant, lush, green Galilee to the arid, dry Jerusalem. He's headed there one last time. It's kind of a whistle-stop tour for Jesus. He's making his way to the capital where all of the promises regarding him being Messiah and King are going to be fulfilled in one spectacular moment. Um, He knows what's going to come. He knows that he is going to be wrongly arrested, tortured, condemned, crucified. Yet Jesus had counted the cost. And Jesus decided it is worth it. He decided to go to Jerusalem to get this done, to become Messiah and King. He had told his disciples what would happen. Three days after the crucifixion, he would rise from the dead And he knew that his father would keep his promises, that this would come to pass. And so he said, it is worth it. And he made this trip. He would pioneer the new city to come by making this journey to to Jerusalem. So the point that I want to draw from that is there isn't anything in chapter 14 that Jesus asks of us that he hasn't already done himself. Jesus counted the cost, he decided it was worth it, and now he invites us to do the same. There isn't anything in this chapter that Jesus asks of us that he hasn't already chosen for himself. So along the way to Jerusalem, along this whistle-stop tour, he comes to this Sabbath feast at the home of a religious leader, and that's where most of the action takes place. And there are four little vignettes that we're going to look at one at a time about counting the cost. The first one in verses one to six. It's about healing on the Sabbath, asking the question, is it worth it to do the right thing? Is it worth it to do the right thing? You know, God originally gave us the Sabbath as a gift, as a blessing for rest and for renewal in Him. But in Jesus' day, unless you were wealthy, Sabbath-keeping was typically quite a burden. So 
Jesus invited people to reclaim the Sabbath as God's gift to them, a source of life rather than grief. On this particular day, a sick man appears in the midst of the feast, and the religious leaders were eyeing Jesus to see what he was going to do, if he would violate their Sabbath uh, traditions that they had developed and heal the man. And Jesus said to them in verse 5, do you see it? Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? Did you catch that? That's a cost-benefit analysis, isn't it? It's a cost-benefit analysis. Jesus did the math, and for him it was a simple no-brainer. Which is more costly? Getting up off of the sofa on your day off or losing your best worker down the well? Since the Sabbath was for the renewal of life, Jesus argued, who wouldn't interrupt their resting and feasting to rescue a life in danger? And that's why, even though it offended the religious leaders, that's why Jesus went ahead and healed the man in the middle of the feast. Jesus invites us to do that same kind of cost-benefit analysis. He, He invites us to ask, is it worth it? And particularly, he asks us, to do this with regard to, to, to determining whether we should go against the flow in order to follow him, in order to do the right thing. Now, the city to come is a place where no one is going to make fun of you for doing the right thing. That's the city where we live together as the church. That's the city where the whole world is headed someday. But along the way... When we're out there, there are going to be times when we'll have to weigh the long-term benefits of eternal life with Jesus over and against the cost, the social cost in particular, of doing something that's unpopular, right? So if you're single, for example, and you're not sexually active out of faithfulness to Jesus, then you know this tension very well, right? How do you keep going against the flow night after night, weekend after weekend? Whether you realize it or not, you're engaging in a cost-benefit kind of analysis. You're counting the cost, and you're practicing this spiritual discipline of counting the cost. You weigh the costs and benefits of celibacy at the present and conclude that deep abiding joy with Jesus forever is far greater value than the superficial kind of rush that comes from a casual hookup culture. It takes a lot of courage to do this, by the way, and I applaud you if you're you're doing this. It's It's a very courageous thing in this day and age. Whether you're in that particular tension or some other tension, we all feel this. Whether you're young or old, whether you are in school or middle-aged or retired, there's probably some popular group that you can imagine right now, some inner circle that you're not a part of, that you would really like to be a part of, truth be told, right? Compared to you, who are the popular people? Who's in that crowd that you're not a part of? Most of us feel it, and many of us feel it pretty acutely. And I'll wager that Um, In this gathering this morning, if we were to count up all the hours that we spent, a few of them consciously, but many of them unconsciously, figuring how we might inch a little closer to getting inside that crowd, just this past week, there'd be a thousand hours that we spent on it 
over the past week, trying to find our way inside that inner ring one way or another. That's a thousand hours, really, of meditating on the cost-benefit of moving towards the cool kids' club. It's rare that we actually think about it consciously, you know? We're oftentimes doing it in the background, a kind of of low-grade processing that's happening. We're considering, if I take this step, then how much closer will I be inside that inner ring? And that's very likely what was happening with the men at the banquet. That's how they had gotten to this place where they could be so stupid as to try to maintain a tradition that would keep from healing someone who was sick on the Sabbath, right? How do you get to a place where you oppose doing the right thing like this except through this very gradual drip, drip, drip of weighing the cost and saying, yeah, I would really rather be with this cool kids club than do the right thing. I doubt that any of them set out to become so cold and heartless, right? Whenever we really sit down and count the costs in an open way, when we think about it, it becomes so simple, so clear. It's, it's just the same kind of no-brainer as Jesus spoke of at the banquet. Sun or Sabbath, duh. <laughs> you know, of course, I'm going to save my son. And it's the same way today. Wait, now. Let's really think about those cool kids for a moment. Are they really happy? Will I really be happy when I'm inside? Is it really worth it? Oh, that's an, that's an easy one, actually. Having thought about it now, I don't need that. Think about it. Don't grow weary in doing well. Count the costs. That's what Jesus wants you to do. That's what he's inviting you to do. The benefits far outweigh the costs of following him. For everyone here who's suffering today for doing the right thing, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. So that's the first vignette. The second vignette starts in verse 7. In this vignette, the question is, is it worth it to go unnoticed? Jesus shared with the banquet guests in verses 8 through 11 this parable about uh, self-promotion. So let me read it to you. When you're invited... By someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, and then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So here's another cost-benefit analysis. Did you catch it here? For Jesus, it was better to be faithful and anonymous than to grasp for honor and to be shamed. Better to be faithful and anonymous than to grasp for honor and be shamed. Jesus lived this out for us again and again as the prince who lived and died as a pauper so that he might rise again in glory and establish the city to come. He acted this out for us. And Jesus invites us to do the same kind of cost-benefit analysis, asking, is it worth it, particularly in terms of going unnoticed for the sake of the kingdom? The city to come is a place where your work will matter because God values it. Full stop. 
because God values it. But in the present city, your work matters because of how other people value it, right? And specifically, how much money you make doing your work. And along this path to the city to come, there will be times when following Jesus means staying in the shadows rather than being in the spotlight, like putting your career on the back burner so that you can raise godly kids, right? After all of those years of schooling, all that you really could be in your career, all that work preparing to change the world in some way, how could, the, how could you then settle for something so mundane as raising a family? By counting the costs. When you get out the spreadsheet and you measure and you weigh it, well, of course, of course, I can change the world by raising godly children. And I'll probably have a greater impact through them than through the other. The long-term benefits, the fruit of faithfulness, far outweigh the lack of public recognition in the present. Third vignette, starting in verse 12. Is putting up with needy people really worth it? Count the costs. Is putting up with undesirables really worth it? The tension building inside this banquet comes to a head in the third vignette. Jesus challenged the religious elitism of the banquet guests by proclaiming that not only will a lot of the so-called undesirables be welcomed in the city to come, but the king himself, Jesus, would be chief among them. Consider first what Jesus said to the banquet host in verse 12. When you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast... Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the Syrian refugees, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In pointing to the resurrection of the just, Jesus is talking about that great unveiling of the city to come when the only people who will be invited into the city will be the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Or as Jesus said on an earlier occasion, those who need a physician. Those are the only ones who come in to that city. Those who insist that they're well will never venture in. It's the same for us today. It's like the husband behind the wheel who refuses to admit that he's lost. And until he admits his weakness, right, he's going to stay lost. He'll never know the right way to go. It's in the the same way, unless we admit that we are lost without Christ, He will not lead us. That's why we always come back to where we started, by confessing our sins and asking for forgiveness and returning to Jesus as our Savior and Lord. If we insist that we're just fine without Him, then there's no place for us in the kingdom. Now let's think about this in terms of costs and benefits. Is it worth it following Jesus? particularly in in terms of the kinds of people, the kinds of needy people who will be our friends if we're serious about our faith. It's good to be with you today. Everyone needs friends, and I'm always glad to make new ones. But to be completely honest, if you're needy, I don't really need you. 
I don't really want to be friends if you're needy. I might be able to help you, but no offense, needy people wear me out. I prefer friends who are smarter than me, um, yet who agree that everything I say is smart too. (laughs) I prefer friends who are really good looking and tell me that I'm good looking too. I prefer friends who are extraordinarily wealthy. They buy everything for me. They don't care that I'm cheap. And do you know why I prefer people like this? Because I'm needy. (laughs) Because I'm needy. And as I write this down on my cost-benefit worksheet, Jesus is looking over my shoulder and he's shaking his head and he's saying, remember who I prefer to be friends with. Remember, I prefer to be friends with the needy. The city to come will be filled with them. And though I hate to admit it, I know that he's right. So in verses 15 through 24, Jesus goes on to tell this parable of the great banquet. And in the parable, he he described three confirmed guests, three who would be coming most definitely, who gave these absurdly rude excuses when time came to eat. It's like adding an insult to your RSVP on the Evite. You know, you say no, and then I'm going to add a comment and say, heck no, right? <laughs> and let me tell you why I'm not coming, because I really don't like you. Each, each one of these responses is this. Uh, first of all, there's a man who bought a field, verse 18, but then needed to go and have a look at it. Seriously? I mean, a lot of you people know farming out here. Who buys a field? Who buys equipment for their farm without even looking at it, Right? Um, nobody with any sense buys property without having first examined it. And Jesus' hearers would have recognized this as an intentional insult. Sorry, I have to wash my hair kind of insult. So the second excuse about examining five yoke of oxen is exactly the same. Verse 19, no farmer with any sense buys equipment without having examined his equipment first. So Jesus' hearers would have seen this as a slap in the face as well. And the third excuse from the bridegroom, verse 20, is the rudest of all. He didn't get married that day. No community in the ancient Near East could have handled two parties like this one in in the same week, probably in the same month, okay? So he most certainly didn't get married that day. He had to have been married sometime before, which begs the question, what does your marital status have to do with this RSVP at all? What's going on? And unlike the first two responders, he doesn't even say, please excuse me. He just says, no. His answer is the most insulting. But all three of these responses send the same message to Jesus. All three of them say, hey, I'm rejecting you. It's not your party that I'm rejecting. I'm rejecting you. And of course, Jesus is telling this parable to talk about the way that the religious leaders in particular had rejected him. They didn't like him. He did all these things that they didn't like. He healed people on the Sabbath, for example. He touched and ate with all of these grossly unclean people, right? He, he fancied that he himself was a king, but he wasn't the kind of king that anyone expected or wanted. So the parable ends with all the sort of needy people Jesus attracts 
gathering at this great banquet, which is a picture of the city to come, but verse 24, take a look at it. Verse 24, all those who rejected Jesus will themselves be rejected from the banquet. So the whole parable is an invitation to count the cost, to weigh the cost-benefit analysis, particularly with regard to our own elitism. To the extent that we exclude needy people from our own circles. We're insulating ourselves from our own neediness. And that's super dangerous when you think about it. On the other hand, when we welcome needy in as friends, we show solidarity with them, and there's eternal benefit to us because we're being reminded that it's needy people that Jesus came to save. These days it feels like the only thing that matters is who you know. And every happy hour, every opening night at the art show every fundraising gala that you go to is another opportunity to put on your best suit make sure you've got a breath man in and go rub shoulders with people who might be useful people who might be valuable in some some way of help someday sooner or later even at church though rare even at church sometimes we come and we can be dismissive about those college students for example who come and go It's really good to connect with the people who might help me get a leg up, who might be of benefit to me in the week ahead. Time is short, and we're so, well, we're so needy. We don't have time for real friendships anymore. It's a race to find useful people to help us. Jesus says to us, yes, Actually, I agree with you that the only thing that matters is who you know. The only thing that matters is who you know. And Jesus says, so long as you know me. But you won't know me unless you admit that you need me. And that's the crux for us as we count the cost. At the end of the day, we need him more than we need anybody else. But as soon as we choose him, we discover that knowing Jesus opens the door to the greatest people, the most useful and valuable people you'll ever want to meet. Just think about the network of family that we have within the church. It's wonderful. My life is a whole lot richer because of all of the needy people that I'm friends with as a needy guy in the middle of the church. So when we count the cost and we choose Jesus over all the others, we end up becoming a part of this enormous, loving family who fill our lives with meaning and joy. And over the years, it has been such a wonderful experience to be on Capitol Hill, to be um, in in a place where, you know, it's who you know that matters, but to be a part of a, a little invisible family right in the midst of that. Um, As we like to say, God oftentimes sends us people because he knows we need them. He he puts a note around their neck and says to Rez, because I knew you needed one of these, love Jesus. The last vignette, verses 25 to 35, is really the conclusion. Outside the banquet, verse 25, Jesus summarized his teaching about counting the cost for the people in the crowd, the people who hadn't been invited in, his growing family of of needy undesirables. And even though Jesus had affirmed earlier the Ten Commandments, including honoring mother and father, he said in verse 26, 
that following him might require breaking even with one's biological family. Verse 27, he likened it to carrying a cross, which probably meant nothing to the crowd at the time, of course, but would have enormous significance just a few weeks later. In verses 28 and following, he compared following him to counting the cost in a construction project or a military campaign. And the bottom line, the last three verses of this chapter, is that following him requires undivided loyalty and allegiance. Those who make only a partial commitment to Jesus are worthless. They're no better than, uh, they're, they're no more use, not even fit for the soil or for the manure pile, he says. So the overall message is that we must count the cost of following him, knowing that he expects our full and complete allegiance. And we live in a society that's terrified of religious extremism, and with good reason. On the shores of our country, there's been a lot. Whether you go way back to the Salem witch trials or go just last month in California, San Bernardino, there's been a history of religious violence on this continent. And let's be clear that complete allegiance, that kind of complete allegiance that Jesus calls us to, is the antithesis of terrorism. It's very, very different. That's not what we're talking about. Instead, it's, it's unflinching love in the midst of evil. Unflinching love of God, unflinching love of neighbor, the kind of love that Jesus modeled for us in the Gospels. But because we're afraid of religious extremism, we often don't hear what Jesus is saying to us in passages like this. He's calling us to a 100% commitment level, right? In fact, we often hear instead that you can be a Christian and still be cool, right? You can be a Christian and still be an insider with the Cool Kids Club or whatever. Just be nice and nobody will ever know. Yet throughout this passage, again and again and again and again, we're seeing, especially in these final verses, Jesus telling us otherwise. He's telling us you've got to count the cost. Jesus is not trying to trick us. He's not trying to... to, I I remember this in youth group growing up, being kind of duped into becoming a Christian, right? It's it's not going to hurt that bad. You can be the same person afterwards. Just come on, make this little prayer. It'll be all over with, and then you'll be an insider. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is not pulling any punches. He's not trying to play a trick on us. In fact, he is utterly transparent about what he expects of us as his followers. And quite, quite clearly, he wants us to count the cost. He wants us to do it over and over and over again because he is sure that if we count the cost, we're going to end up loving him even more. That's what's going on in this passage. He wants us to do it. When we see the rewards of following him, we'll know that they're infinitely greater than the risks. He invites us to do the math, to count the costs and benefits, and then to choose joyfully. As the woman who has just received the proposal from her husband-to-be shouts, yes, of course, I want to marry you. Of course. It's that kind of joyful counting the cost and saying, absolutely. Absolutely. There's nothing more important, nothing more valuable than life with him, both now and in the city to come. So count the cost, weigh the risks and the rewards, find in Jesus the greatest treasure ever known, and joyfully give him your all. Let's pray.